Hi, listeners. I want to tell you about a cause that I'm involved with at Heritage Radio Network. HRN is celebrating its 15th year, and to celebrate, we're deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, I sound like you, like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. In the world of terrestrial radio, we have a couple of subsets. We have this sort of nationally kind of syndicated... Um, computer-programmed pop stations where you know what you're going to hear. We have political talk radio where, for the most part, you know what you're going to hear. And we have a handful of outliers. One of these is the station out of Dallas, Texas, that I listen to pretty much every day. I listen on my phone via an app called Sports Day it's um, hosted, I think, by the Dallas Morning News newspapers, also an institution that has taken a hit in the modern era. But this terrestrial radio becomes um, this sort of international thing via this app, and I listen to it wherever I am in the world. Uh, I started listening when I did live in Dallas, Texas, for this station is based in Dallas and has existed for now 25 years. They started within about a year of my band Old 97s starting, and pretty quickly they became the biggest talk radio station in Dallas. They are, uh, on paper, a sports radio station, but they're a lot more than that. They're probably what would be called nowadays a lifestyle talk radio station. A lot of it does center around sports. A lot of it centers around Dallas sports. Um, Even though I moved away years and years ago, a quarter century ago, I still followed Dallas sports teams and root for those teams. Um, So that makes it easier for me to listen to the ticket because I want to know what the Dallas Stars are doing. There is one host on that station in the morning, the morning show, which is their highest rated show on this highest rated station, there is one host who doesn't even like sports, as far as I can tell. He is uh, what they call in the parlance of that industry, a yuck monkey. Um, I feel like this sort of belittles his contribution to the show and the station. 
His job is to create characters. He also does segments where he brings the news, talks about local issues, but the main thing that people expect from him and love him for is the way he creates characters. Uh, sometimes these are characters uh, that he's mimicking local characters, Jerry Jones, Jason Garrett. Um, sometimes these are characters he's created out of whole cloth. Uh, Marge the Swimming Coach, Mushmouth, uh, the Ticket Mouse. Um, sometimes he uses effects on his voice to help you know these characters sound even crazier, weirder. Um, sometimes he just does it with his vocal cords and his acting ability. He is my funniest friend. I don't mean to offend any of my numerous comedian or funny friends. And I do have a lot. I'm not bragging. I, I, I'm lucky I get to hang out with a lot of comedians, a lot of funny people. But man, Gordon has a thing that is just otherworldly about what he does in a way that when I watch uh, a magician do close-up magic and I can't believe that he's doing this right there, I should be able to tell how he does it, and yet I can't figure out how he does it. The same can be said of Gordon Keith. Gordon Keith is a magician when it comes to mimicry, when it comes to character creation, when it comes to comedy. Spontaneous, improvisational, ad-libbed. It's just crazy how funny he is. And I think a lot of that goes to how intelligent he is. And we end up talking about this in the interview. Um, how empathetic he is. How open he is to the world around him. And the real life characters that inhabit that world. I loved getting to talk to Gordon. I've known him well for years, but I've never really sat down and picked his brain as thoroughly as I do in this interview. Please welcome Dallas radio talk show host, our Marconi award winner, beloved by denizens of Dallas and people of the world. Please welcome to Wheels Off, the great Gordon Keith. Welcome to Wheels Off, Gordon Keith. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> Thank you. Right away, you make me laugh. Um, so I've explained to our listeners uh, who you are because some of them don't live in the North Texas area. Right. Um, but I'm so happy to be sitting across from you right now in your Airstream um, on these nice microphones you've provided us with. Um, I think By the way, this is not standard equipment in an Airstream. <laughs> The mobile studio. This is something I did special. It's a bespoke Airstream for me. Um, so we always start on wheels off with what creative project are you working on right now and how is it inspiring you? Creative project that I'm working on right now. You know, I've just kind of started diving back into writing, which is interesting because I'm, as you mentioned at the top of the show, which I really enjoyed that intro that you did. Uh, you know, I'm mainly known for radio. Radio is my main gig. Yeah. But writing is, is my 
passion and my love and and i i always feel most at home when i'm doing when i'm writing well and so to dive back into that means a lot to me and it's it's the most rewarding thing i don't know for whatever reason of course you're you have creative writing in your past too i do i I like it and i know you've written a lot of um essays over the years is Mm -hmm. that is that sort of what you're delving into now again kind of personal essays i'm getting into more of the short story i want to do more short stories i don't know why it doesn't seem like do people read short stories anymore other than teachers (laughs) this seems to be the main reading audience for short stories i think they do and i think a lot of a lot of um fiction that comes out now under the guise of sort of um a novel will be like a collection of short stories jennifer egan had a book uh called uh a visit from the goon squad Mm -hmm. and that was all short stories that were sort of nominally connected to each other but i think short stories they say it's the purest art form in a lot of ways well you would think with our shorter attention span that short stories should be more popular than books or novels but it doesn't seem to have gone that way i mean are any of them really that popular even anymore no i'm i I just found out what a book was like two weeks ago (laughs) and like is that a long web post what is that i feel (laughs) i feel like when you do um segments especially when you're segments uh in character um a lot of that i'm not saying it feels written but when I imagine you doing like a really long piece, it feels like you must have written this out. Like mm-hmm. when you sit down to do those, do you give yourself a full script? Are there bullet points? I'll usually write. I think I write, I would say, probably 80% of the character I do is written. You know, you always like to have something to go to if in case the the improving skills don't work out for you, you aren't able to come up with something good. So you always, uh, I like to have, my jokes and they're on the page where I can make them. And then I improv about 20% of it. That's fantastic. And um, do you wind up doing those like in the couple of segments leading up to that segment? Yeah. I always write those characters probably in the 15 minutes beforehand before I perform them. Uh, You know, I should, and I, I want to learn how to work ahead a little bit more, but I learned very on in the radio show that, if I wrote something the day before, by the time I get to the next day, it's real stale and I don't feel a lot of energy for it. But if I write it right before it, like I think, Oh, this is going to be really good. I actually, actually have some energy behind it and some confidence in it. Well, it feels fresh. Yeah. And you're able to do little callbacks to maybe segments that have been exactly right before it. Right. I mean, you, it's a weird collaboration though, because you obviously depend on your on-air partners Mm -hmm. to bounce things off of. Right. And sometimes they don't, Give me the feed lines that I need for the punchline yeah. that I have that's going to be so great. And then they forget the feed line and I have but to. But you do give them the feed lines ahead of time. Yeah, I'll say like, you know, hey, after I mentioned that that I collect crickets yeah. or something, you need to ask me, uh, do I still see my grandmother? You know, it'll be some kind of thing that they need. And I, I need this in order to get to this next joke. That's not a real example. I don't know if you're able to pick up on that. That, uh, that situation's never occurred. I'm writing a skit in my head a right now. Cricket collector needed to uh, mention one of their um, ancestors. But anyway, so is the, a grandmother an ancestor? I think it's a. I mean, like, it is technically, but we. Like, how many generations do you have to go before you're comfortable using the word ancestor? Maybe if she's dead, then yeah. it's more likely. Great grandparents. Great great grandparents are certainly your ancestors. Absolutely. 
But then when you get the great grandparent, did you know any of your great grandparents, by the way? My one great grandmother mm-hmm. who was still alive. And she was like a trailblazing Pine Bluff, Arkansas woman. Wait, she's still alive? No, she was when I was a little, little oh, kid. She was at one point and still I, alive? I, I, I remember her, <laughs> I guess is my oh, okay. All right. What about you? Uh, no, I knew, I met my great grandmother once. She was the only one that I ever met. And it was interesting. She had had quite a hard life and had lived in a mental institution her entire life. That was a, her that was a thing, life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. right? Did She probably got shock treatments too. You know, I wonder, I, I've been, it's been very hard to get the records from back then. But, uh, but yeah, she lived in, she kind of went crazy in her 20s. And would be in and out of mental institutions, and my great grandfather would get her out every once in a while, and it seemed like it was basically just a long, long enough to get pregnant, and then she would have another kid. <laughs> oh and uh, yeah, it was a really strange story. That's actually one of the stories, the family research that I've done. There are some really crazy things in my family's past, um, and I want to write those things out in long form before I shuffle off the mortal coil here. Because I did a lot of talking to a bunch of really old people about 15 years ago who still remembered parts of these stories and had witnessed these incredible events that had occurred. And so I did all this research for it. And I'd love to put that in kind of a a book about what life was like. It was around the turn of the night. It was the beginning of the 1900s. And And these people have all probably died. Yeah, they're all kind of like your great grandmother. Yep. Dead now. Dead now. So dead. Yeah, ancestors. They're ancestors now. They once were living people. I feel like whenever I ask this question, I feel like such a noob, as my kids would say. Um, but I do I do end up asking this of people who write. You like to write on a computer? And, and I mainly ask you this because I know you have a typewriter. Right. Fetish? Can I call it that? I have a writing implement fetish. Yeah. So basically anything that you can produce words with. It's like I've gone through and I have, uh, I probably have 300 to 400 typewriters. Um, I don't use them all, but I, I had to get one of everything where I could see which one I liked the most. I worked on them. I rehabbed all of them. And now they just sit in storage. Uh, I also get into, I just showed you right before we came in here, how I've gotten into old IBM keyboards for computers for the early personal computers they're all clickety clackety uh, ones clickety clackety ones right they're mechanical keyboards and it even predates the model m which is a very famous ibm keyboard but uh those that you that one that you used was an ibm model f that came with the xt computer and that's it's one of the holy grails of mechanical switched keyboards and i found it at an estate sale just right around the corner for five bucks and so, now you buy them on ebay for close to two hundred dollars but what I found th- one for five bucks. What do you think it is that makes those so collectible and beloved? It's the typing feel of them because each switch is a mechanical switch. And so you get this tactile feedback when you're typing on them. And uh, it just is a much more pleasurable experience. And they just feel so different than, than today's modern keyboard. It's very strange that computers got a lot better and keyboards got a lot worse. Mm-hmm. Like that keyboard, when it first came out with that computer... Um, it went for like the equivalent of a thousand dollars today just to buy a keyboard. For wow. It. Yeah. It's insane. And <laughs> of course I have mechanical pencils. I've, I've bought every kind of pen there was in the world. I go through these OCD phases where I have to research and learn everything about this because I'm just fascinated with writing implements. Do you think you do that because you think that if you find the perfect implement, it will 
make the writing easier, better? Right. It's, it's twofold. One is it's a complete waste of time and a distraction and an <laughs> avoidance of getting words down. And, uh, and the other thing is, yeah, when, when I do find something that I do really love is I want to interact with it. And that always leads me to writing and leads me to producing something. Oh, that's great. So, yeah, if I get in, if I get like a, a keyboard that I love using or I get a pen and a notebook that I love, I love to fill it up, you know, and I love to write. And so it's kind of um, the thing that they say in music, which I think you're involved in music somehow, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, they say, you know, every guitar has a song in it. Yeah. You know, you pick up a new guitar and you'll end up playing it in a little bit different way than you would your other guitar you know, an acoustic versus an electric. So they can be inspiring. The actual tools that you use can be inspiring and change the way that you create. And I found that to be true with writing stuff too. And sometimes when you're stuck on something, if you just switch from one guitar mm -hmm. to another guitar, or the Bob Dylan quote was always, if I start writing something on a piano and I get stuck, I move to guitar or vice versa. Yeah. And it unsticks you just a different way right. of thinking. But this has come up but probably because I've asked this question of writers, but I know um, with Michael Chabon and Harlan Coben both had interesting takes on this where um, the sort of the um, the underlying message was you can't get hung up on the medium, mm -hmm. you know, what you're using. Um, in fact, you know, with with Michael, his his whole thing was, you know, I'll write on a computer or a laptop. Sure. But if I'm on a plane, I'll write on an iPad. And if I'm in my, the car writing in a car, I'll write on my phone. Right. And Harlan Coben, his thing was kind of similar to Bob Dylan's where it was. If um if writing on a pad is working for me today, I'll write on a pad. Mm -hmm. Writing on a laptop, you know, it's just whatever works. Whatever works, exactly. But I know it's like you're saying, a lot of times for me, I'll use the excuse, well, I, I would love to write today, but I don't have my laptop. Right. You know, and it's, it's that stupid thing that we do to ourselves. <laughs> it's BS. You know, and that's one of the ma magical things to me about writing as a creative endeavor is that with a pen and a pad – you can create a world. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the few creative things that requires so very little to actually make something of enduring value. And that to me just seems incredible. You know, uh, I think it was Stephen King who said this. He called books, you know, a unique kind of portable magic. And it, above everything else that I do, when, when you write well and you think that this, here it is, something that only requires a pencil and a pad and then I can time travel and then I can write something that somebody can read 200 years from now and it can transport them. I mean, books that were written hundreds of years ago, if you read them and you can do this time travel of going into a different world and it's immersive and it's one of the most efficient forms of creativity in the sense that I don't have to write much for your own mind to finish populating that world to make it spoke to you and you can get immersed in a story and your mind the reader's mind is doing a lot of the heavy lifting of creating that world that you're creating in fiction as a writer and uh i just think that everything about writing to me just seems like incredible magic and it's available to all of us which is so fascinating to me i mean i was taking you know, somebody who didn't think that they could write and said, okay here take 10 minutes and here's this writing prompt and i want you to make that i'll give them a little bit of scenario and a little bit of conflict. And I say, just write something crazy, something stupid. And at the end of it, they're thrilling. Uh, they, something thrilling has happened in them that they've created this thing that's so silly and they didn't think they could write. And everyone 
can write if they just let loose. I just think we're just so white knuckled that we can't. God. That that's when we're trying to maintain it. You know, that's when we start white knuckling it. That's when we start collecting a bunch of computer keyboards and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you can do it on any instrument. You know, and sometimes the instrument helps you, and then you're. It's up to you to recognize your own BS and know when the instruments and the search for them is distracting you from making the the music. I think I just mix metaphors. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but you. But speaking of mm-hmm. you know all these different things, you you're a pretty great musician as well. Like you've gone down a lot of self-improvement rabbit holes when it comes to learning to play guitar. Like right. Really difficult guitar. Mm-hmm. You've written songs. Right. You go out sometimes and perform music. I mean, you do, a, you do a lot of things. I mean, obviously you're best known for your work on the ticket and making the characters. And it's kind of ironic that it's technically a sports radio station and you are yeah. not a sports fan. I skipped over the learning about sports part. <laughs> you get a job there, but yeah. I would. You're probably your most famous character on there is the fake Jerry Jones. Yeah, I, I'm guessing. Yeah, that guy's given me a career. I, just the fact that we had Jerry Jones in this <laughs> in this uh, town is just the most ridiculous Jr. surreal owner. And yeah, he's just been wonderful for us to have that character. I think it's funny though, um, knowing you, but then also listening for years to your work on the radio. I feel like if I played these characters for people. Like, nobody would believe that this was all the same person. Mm-hmm. Like, so you inhabit these other bodies. And I, I feel like what you're doing is incorporating a lot of different performance styles, you know, from, from the writing of it to the acting, all the voices, um, the improv ability that you're displaying constantly while you're doing these things. I wonder, when you were a kid, was there a moment where you knew that, like, this weird um multiplicity of talents converging into this characterization like you can become these other people was there a moment where you knew that that was what you were gonna do for a living i always thought i always did a lot of this stuff because we would me i have a brother and a sister and we would just imitate our family members our extended family members so anytime we were coming back from a big family reunion uh we would come back and just improv these plays doing all the different voices and (laughs) and my brother and sister are good at it too and and so it just felt natural to do that and to see if you could get because it was not only getting the voice down but getting their content down and then getting some facial tick that they have down and so it was it's fun just uh, escaping (laughs) into those other characters and just improving around and i always found like my mind just tended to work longer in it long after everyone else had set aside the let's imitate people I was still in character, you know, and still doing it. And I just couldn't get it out of my mind, you know, so I had to keep doing it. Do you feel like your dad being a preacher, because there's a performance Mm -hmm. element to that. I mean, do you think watching a father be a sort of a performer, was that something that seemed like it made it a viable career path for you? You know, I I mean, still to this day, I mean, he's he's passed away now, but I just, uh, I still marvel and I'm amazed at how he can get up there, how he could get up there and speak in front of people for, you know, 20, 30 minutes. And he would do it with, he would just kind of make himself an outline that then he would never even kind of refer to, you know, he wasn't a write out every word kind of guy. And uh, to speak extemporaneously to me, that also seems like magic. And it's very interesting to me how a lot of my, you know, you're, I consider you a friend, although I don't really know what you do or what your last name is, (laughs) but I consider you a close personal friend. But it's like all these people in these different creative elements marvel at what the other one can do. And 
to someone like you, it seems so natural to get up there and play, do a solo gig, and you're playing and singing your guitar, and it's no big deal. But somebody else who is somebody that you may admire may go and see you and just think that that is just, how does he do that? That's incredible. I, can, I mean, that just seems so amazing. And you look at something that somebody else does creatively, and you just go, God, man, I just don't understand how they do that, you know? And uh, I always did that with my dad. I was, I was just how he could get up there and a good preacher. Um, a good preacher is much like a great monologist or a storyteller to captivate an audience with just your voice and a microphone. And you can have everyone and you start examining the techniques in which they do that when they start talking quieter, more pauses and you start leaning forward in your pew, you know. As a listener, you just they bring you in and draw you in and can just impact you so much by speaking. I still can't do what he does and uh, did. And uh, I've always wanted to try it just to see if I could ever get up there and do it. But I've never done it that way. And yet some people look at what I do on radio and think, well, how does he do that for four and a half hours and just talk and everything? But I don't know. To me, it seems easy to do that part of it. Whereas if you put me on stage for 20 minutes while everyone's looking at me and I had to speak for 20 minutes, I think that uh, that seems more difficult to me. I don't know why. I've thought of, <clears throat> I've got a handful of friends that are stand-up comedians, and I always look at their job and think, to me, that's got to be the hardest. Mm-hmm. But it, but but maybe you know, being a preacher without like completely reading a script, being an extemporaneously speaking preacher, mm-hmm. that maybe that's even harder. But you're walking. I mean, I guess with comics. They've got material, and they right. know that they can go from bit to bit, and they've worked out the timing on stuff. And you know, maybe a preacher has some of that. They're working from a text, mm-hmm. ideally. But um, yeah, it's terrifying. It's terrifying, right? But it is funny how people in other jobs. It's it's like the it's some um, alternate variation of the grass always being greener. Mm-hmm. I remember years ago, I got to have dinner with Tom Brady. It was right after he won the, his first Super Bowl. And um, and I've always been a sports fan. Roger Staubach was my number one growing up, and so I I finally let myself geek out for a minute and say, so what do you do? How do you you know you look at the the cornerbacks over there and the safety? And I'm asking him these questions, and he's like, dude, I watched you play the other night, and you did that song Question, mm-hmm. and I was like, I wish I could do that. I could never do what you do. Right. <laughs> like, that's Tom Brady. Yeah. You know, who's <laughs> looking at something you do. And yeah, I mean, it, it's like that. I mean, anybody who's good at something looks at somebody else who's good at something and feels like, oh man, why can't I do that? Why, how is that? That just seems so far out of my realm of doing things. And basically anything that is amazing or good or great, um, all of us think that we can't do it. But yeah. the ones who do it are the ones who just show up and just, it's like, I don't even know if you told me that I had to do four and a half hours of radio tomorrow and I thought about that for a second, I would get daunted. But when it's just like, oh, that's just the thing I got to do. You just go in and you do one step at a time and then you turn on the mic and you just say, well, I'm just going to say this one sentence. I'll say this next one. And that's how you add up to doing something that makes a career. You know, that's how you write a novel. You don't you don't write a novel. You write 200 words at a time or 500 words or whatever your word count is for the day. It's like... Greatness is just an accumulation. It's it's not a, a one, uh, one, one huge burst. It's always what leads up to that. It's the one drop that hits the bucket that tips the bucket over. But that one drop wouldn't tip the bucket over if it hadn't been for the uh, 
10,000 that happened before it. God, I love that. That is true. It's and it's in a way we trick ourselves, right? Mm-hmm. You you know, you say I've done four and a half hours of radio however many times, thousands of times. I can do this again. Mm-hmm. I've walked like, you know, I've walked out on stage and that was what in the end that was when I pressed him. That was what Tom Brady said. He goes, "I don't know. I just I used I did it every single day in high school, every single day in college, and I've done it for each just I look out there, I see it. It's easy." Right. It's easy for you. It's easy for you because you've done it. Well, look at you, though. I mean, look how many songs you've written. That is just so mind-blowing to me. Like, I've probably written, I don't know, 30 songs in my life or something, you know, back when I was in bands before the radio. And you've just written so many songs, and the way you write them is basically, I mean, I know you got bits of them going, but it's one at a time. I mean, you just have to, you just write. And pretty soon, you've written a whole bunch of songs. And people like you amaze me. Anybody who's prolific amazes me. You've written a lot of songs. Stephen King has written a lot of books. Larry McMurtry's written a lot of books. But I, I wonder sometimes, and in, in, in a way, I won't say I feel bad for you, but I, there's something about because you're you're as or more prolific than anyone I've ever known. You wake up every day at four thirty in the morning. You go from five thirty until ten, and you do, you know, you're not doing every segment, but like I don't know, six segments a day mm-hmm. where you're just killing and you're making up this brilliant stuff. But it goes. It just goes away into the ether. I know. And there's some guy at Unticket who's maybe capturing some of it or <laughs> right. you know, some late night board op who's putting up, you know, little podcast snippets for people on sportsday.com to go listen to uh-huh. ticket archives. But um but it's very effervescent, you know. I mean, maybe that could be said of someone who's doing sports or whatever, but I mean it's do you think that makes it easier or harder? Do you think that do, does it ever does it ever kind of hurt your soul that you're you're making such gold and it's just flying away? Yeah, you know, I'm of two minds on that. That used to bother me. Yeah. And that that all of this stuff that I'm doing is disposable. I think I actually think I have the worst of both worlds in this because <laughs> because it's like for four and a half hours, when you're on that much every day, you know, it's supposed to be disposable. I mean, you can't do, you know. I'm not doing it for the ages. I'm doing it for today. Yeah. Right. There's certain jokes that work today that are not going to work a week from now, particularly with our accelerating culture, of course. Now, standards change very quickly and stuff isn't meant for all time. But yet we have this problem now where I'm doing throwaway radio four and a half hours a day and it's being saved for all time, which means that it's not, you can listen to a bit, you know, that happened 15 years ago. It's not going to hold up today, and it doesn't hold up to today's standards. And uh, comedy itself is always a reflection of the moment for the most part. There's some comedy that transcends generations, but for the most part, comedy doesn't age well. No. So, I mean, I think I get the worst of both worlds in that I do disposable radio that's been preserved on these websites that keep it around for forever. So, but... I don't feel like you've ever gotten in trouble. I probably shouldn't bring this up. I don't think, but I, I can't think of like a scandal involving some bit you did that went horribly wrong or aged really poorly. Right. Uh, I no, I've never gotten in trouble, but I think that the that the the way these things work is that for the audience they're intended to, they understand the context yeah. that something's set in. But more and more today, we get in situations where things are taken from one particular. Yeah, uh, context, and then moved over, and people start listening to it out of context, and then it doesn't doesn't sound so good. But who knows, man? I don't, I don't know if 
if any of our art will survive us. Who knows? It's just fun making it. I know. I think it's so, um, it's so what's kind of vain to think that, oh, well, my art's going to live on forever. Mm -hmm. But it, I don't know. I'll take 10 years. Give me five or 10 years and then I'll be dead. (laughs) I don't care. Yeah, it'll probably be about five years after you're dead before question finally get falls off the whole I proposed no, listening to it. You know what'll happen is five years after I die, some giant country star will cover it and then yeah, and he'll get credit for it. Yeah. It'll be his, you know, hey, you heard that new whatever his name is. Just so long as Colt like, Travis. Kids get some money. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Colt Levi. Levi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Johnny Western. So I you know, I've known you since we were both really young both playing like uh the rhythm room mm-hmm. when we were in our you know early early 20s and um i do know as much as your persona on the radio is that you're like this you are he, you are you are actually a he-man like you're so capable in terms of yard equipment and you know tractors <laughs> and things like that building houses and stuff <laughs> exactly but um but i do know and I don't mean to out you, but I will. You've got a very delicate nature in a lot of ways. You're like a really sensitive person. And so I wonder, because um, outside of North Texas, you don't have to deal with it as much. But especially like in this town and in this area, you're such a well-known figure. And and I'm sure sometimes stuff comes back at you. Like, do you do you have to deal with like, I don't know, the... The slings and arrows of not just outrageous fortune, but other people, as Tartra said, the hell is other people. Mm-hmm. I mean, does, does do you feel affected by it or do you feel like you've insulated yourself enough from them? Like, does it hurt? Does it hurt, Gordon? Does it hurt? Uh, does it hurt? <laughs> you know, I've had been, I think I responded to the station's popularity probably worse than anybody mm-hmm. on the station. I think I got way too private, way too... Um, isolating and it's not good for you to be that isolating and I wanted to be invisible so I started really staying inside and it was you know now it doesn't seem so bad but when I was doing a lot of TV stuff and all of that you just don't um, boy this sounds uh, it's so bad to complain about this but it is an interesting aspect of of being human uh, that sometimes you just don't want to be seen you know and that's tough. I mean, that's really tough when you, you go out and you don't want to be seen. You may be dressed real schlubby, you know, and you, now we got creep shots going on and everything. <laughs> and it's like, well, I don't want to think about that. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that I, I don't know. I don't know that I was really designed for any sort of notoriety. But I wonder if part of what makes you so good at what you do is that sort of insular fly on the wall like you want to be an observer and separate. Yeah. See, cause there's competing things, right? You know, when I, when I do the writing stuff, which is writing stuff I generally have done has been more serious stuff, you know, it's more, and you know, a writer really depends on that observation thing. Mm-hmm. And so does a, a mimic, you know, when I was mimicking people and learning how to imitate people, I always loved when I was a little boy, I just remember watching people. I'd watch my parents, friends, the way they'd move, I'd want to understand why they would say what they would say or do what they do. Or, you know, it was interesting how that uh, that old man had a every time he would say something that was a little bit um, uh, vulnerable, he would always kind of twitch his left eye or just, you know, little observations like that. Uh, 
you're always, I was always looking at adults trying to figure out the world. And, and that is like, I think that it goes against the fact of when you become known for something and then everybody's looking at you, you lose your ability to look at other people because you're having to perform. Whereas a lot of times you just want to sit back and restock your well of observation. And that doesn't work when you go to a bar and everybody wants to buy you a drink, Rhett Miller. Hey, love you, Rhett Miller. And you just want to sit there and just kind of look at people for a little while. I've always been aware of, obviously, the concept of empathy, but it's only, I feel like, recently when I keep hearing people talk about empaths um, as people who are, like, overly empathetic mm-hmm. or, or that really depend on um, empathy for who they are or what they do. But I do feel like so much of what you do is, like like you talk about, the old man, whenever he says something vulnerable and you see his left eye twitch and it's like a tell, and for you, who's really paying attention and feeling this what's going on with the old man like you're it's like a little window into him and you're like accessing something really private but i feel like there's got to be like um an an other knife edge to that or like there's a downside to that empathy oh i think there's a huge downside to that i think that a lot of the you know what a lot of us do is drink as a result of it because you end up feeling real heartbroken for people yeah you know i mean everybody's I think everybody's a walking heartbreak. I mean, and you just, it's in their life somewhere and you get their story. And I always, you know, I always love striking up conversations with people on the, you know, on the bench, just sitting out there, some stranger, you know, and you start asking them about their life. And there's just like, everybody's life is a novel almost. And none of them think it is. Yeah. None of them think that they said anything interesting that's happened to them. And then you start talking to them. They tell you about how, yeah, you know, I've, um, I'm uh you have any brothers and sisters? Oh yeah, I have a uh, you know two sisters and had a brother. Mm. Oh really? What happened? Oh six and he died in a farming accident and he, Oh really? Did that and everything? Yeah, and how'd your parents respond to that? Well, you know my dad, he he kind of stopped talking, I guess for a couple of years. I haven't really thought about it, but yeah, I guess he kind of stopped talking and they're off telling this story that you just think sounds amazing that they went through this and they think that nothing remarkable has ever happened about their life, but you know, I just hear this heartbreak of this eight-year-old boy who lost his six-year-old brother to this farm accident. And then the dad that used to play with him out ball every day on the weekend or on the weekends, you know, stopped playing with him and stayed locked up in his room a lot and started smelling more like medicine, mm. you know, or, or whatever the story is. You know, I get all heartbroken for this stranger on a bench of when he was eight and his brother died and his parents went into the shell and then he lost him until he became a man at 18 and left the house to me that that breaks my heart yeah uh so i'm interested in it and i sit there and ask enough questions till i get to the heartbreak and then i'm heartbroken hearing (laughs) it's like a curse so that's why it's just easier to drink well it's funny i used to before i ever really thought about it on a deep level i used to think when people would say alcohol is a depressant i thought what that meant was that it makes you feel depressed Mm -hmm. but i i've learned and i could be wrong still but I've learned that what that means is that it just pushes everything down so that you don't feel anything. It's like de- like a tongue depressor depresses your tongue, mm-hmm. just pressing it down. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard that idea. And, I mean, I don't know that I even learned that. I just I feel Well, it like- makes some sense because what did we do? You and I both don't drink anymore. Yeah. But, I mean, I always used to drink to numb myself out and get that kind of oblivion going and, you know, stop worrying about things. Uh, 
but yeah, you would press all those feelings down. And what happens when you're not drunk is you wake up and all of a sudden all that stuff is undepressed. And you're like, man, I'm depressed because I've pushed oh. all that stuff down and yeah, to think about it, you know? And, but man, that, uh, I, I had that line in one piece that I wrote about how we're all born, you know, two beers shy of happiness. <laughs> and I really think that's true, man. When you had those first two beers and you know, the world was warm again and you're, you know, you were back in the Garden of Eden. You were back in the mother's womb of love, and everybody, everything felt good, you know. And just then, it just got so hard to get that right moment and to make that moment last because you tip over and being too drunk, and you're sloppy, and you're talking things about you shouldn't talk about, and you're making a fool out of yourself. And you know, what's that old? This one's not enough, and or what is it? Four is three is not enough and four is too many or something. Yeah. That's the way it gets for drinkers. It gets so hard to get that right amount anymore of, of that perfect feeling that you once. Well, the line keeps to. moving, mm-hmm. right? You right. know, two beers is perfect. <laughs> well, two beers doesn't even start. Right. It's tricky. And obviously that was what made me start thinking about the question of de- what is a depressant then? Because I was like, I don't know, man, when I drink, I am a happy person. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't that. It was because it was just pushing back and, and rendering all those feelings of, uh, all the, the the awareness of the heartbreak was mm-hmm. rendering that inaccessible, and if I don't have access to the you know myriad freaking heartbreaks that that are all around us at every moment, but now that I don't drink, you know, and I mean you you're the same way. It's it's a little bit hard to be out in the world because I don't know I get, and I don't know if this is a, a product of getting older or having kids that are teenagers, but I, I wind up in situations all the time, every day these days, I feel like I'll come across something that makes tears spring up at the corners of my eyes. And I just think I can't do this. You know, it's too much. Just being a human being is too much sometimes. Mm-hmm. And it all ends, you yeah. know, it all, it all, I have a real hard time at night and in the morning is when I, I get real, uh, I don't know, freaked out in the afternoon. The mm-hmm. night, morning, afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> but why? Because you're like kind of alone in the universe. Yeah. And things start replaying in my head. You know, the look on my father's face when he was dying. Mm. That that always crosses my my mind at night. And uh, just thinking about what, what my parents thought when they were young and had these little kids. And, you know, that's... A, that's talk about uh, heartbreak. I think having... Uh, any parent, you know, having a child is, is an inherent heartbreak because you're introducing this kid into the world in which they are going to experience so much suffering and pain. And, you know, whether it's a broken heart because the, the girl or guy didn't like them back and, and, you know, they're going to lose a job and they're going to lose their spouse to cancer or whatever that's going to happen in their life. You know, it's like this, this beautiful little creature, you know, that's that's going to be wilted by the world, and you brought them into it, Ugh. you know. But your job is just to just to love them and to bear that heartbreak, and you start experiencing it when they start growing up and they start divorcing themselves from the the Eden of childhood. When you start seeing that, when the magic of childhood starts wearing away, that's I think when the real heartbreak starts. It did for me when I was growing up, you know. I mean, it's like you. Things are enjoyable, and it's let's go play down in the creek, and everything seems fun. And I think what screws us up is puberty. You get puberty <laughs> happening, and then you know all of a sudden the world is is not never the same again. And, then, and we spend the rest of our lives. Some of us spend the rest of our lives uh, 
trying to deal with the the heartbreak of of growing older of uh and i'm talking about growing older from when you exit that that uh, special place of childhood when you get graduated into the world of suffering yeah um and you got to watch your kids go through that if you're lucky you get to watch your kids go through and grow up to be old enough <laughs> to have their heart broken god it's so, so wait wait isn't this supposed to be uplifting let's no. talk about something uplifting well we? you know what we've actually come to the part where normally i would wrap it up there okay. there are some people that do these i always hesitate to say podcasts because i feel like that's such a yucky word why is that a yucky word? Because it's so of the of this time. Mm-hmm. I feel like, do you remember when blogging and vlogging, mm-hmm. that was a big thing? You see, that, I thought this was a vlog. <laughs> is this not a vlog? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't see the word podcast aging well. <laughs> um, but I know a lot of people do these, like the Joe Rogans of the world, where they will talk for three hours. Yeah. But I've I've wanted to keep these short. And like, I would never truncate our conversation here. But this is about the time when naturally it comes to an end well edit out my answers just have to be you <laughs> <laughs> um but god i keep sitting here across from you with these nice microphones and our fancy headphones on i keep thinking about being tempted to do a thing where and we could go back and edit this out me even me asking you this but i keep thinking about james lipton didn't he get embroiled in a me too thing I don't think so, did he? I don't know. I'm I'm throwing him under the bus without even knowing. And he's still alive in like 94 or something like that. (laughs) Okay, but an inside the actor's studio type of thing. Because I'm always so fascinated by your ability to become these other people. Mm -hmm. Do you remember in the inside the actor's studio where he would say, can I talk to? Oh, yes. I always hated this and I always thought (laughs) I would never go on inside the actor's studio because of this. (laughs) Well, then we'll skip it. No, we can do it. Come on. All right. For you, Rhett, whatever the last name is, of course, my close personal friend. Okay. Um, could I talk to Jason Garrett? All right, Jason Garrett, he kind of talks like this, and he kind of repeats things like this. I'm right here. It's good to be here with Rhett Miller. You've been such a positive, a positive influence in so many people's lives, so many people's lives. Uh, I'm not exactly sure what you've done to be positive, but I'm just going to say it anyway because I'm a robot and I talk positively about everyone, and that's what we do day in and day out. It's a process in order to be positive, and that's what we do. That's what we do in all three phases. <laughs> that's fantastic. Garrett just goes on and on like that. Where he's just, it's like a filibuster, right? It is. It's total filibuster, yes. There was there there, there if there are people listening to this that... The, will not have heard the ticket, but there was a thing during the first and 10 TV series where we realized that Jason Garrett was an overcusser. Yes. And so on the ticket, your Jason Garrett said some wild things that all yeah. had to be bleeped like out. Cussing that didn't even make sense. Didn't even make sense. But all right, were- listen, big ass up. <laughs> I want to, I want to get some breakfast in here. Let me get some breakfast. I want to, I want some of those. Can I say it? I don't even know if I can say it. Oh, you know, I've, I've actually tried to keep these pretty peachy. Good. But so he just referred to blueberries with a very odd bit of cussing ahead of them. And the best part was that recently one of your cohorts on the ticket revealed that he had always thought that that was an actual recording because your your mimicry is so perfect to Jason Garrett. He thought that was an actual recording of Jason Garrett. And so Mike Reiner, kind of your boss, is basically on there going like, I can't believe you said that. 
Right. And that and, was you. And we were all appalled going, <laughs> Ryan's actually thought that that was really Jason Garrett. And then I started hearing from all these listeners. They were going, wait a second. They that wasn't real was. Jason Garrett. Yeah, they had missed the original bit that we had done that day. Your Jason and so Garrett they just is heard it over and over in the drops, and so they thought it was real Jason Garrett. It's pretty incredible. <laughs> I mean, I I'm sure that mimicry is a is a thing, and that there, I mean, obviously the Daryl Hammonds of the world and these people that are, in, but your your Jason Garrett is so good that of course they think it's Jason Garrett, and I guess he would have said BF and blueberries. <laughs> right, yeah, would have been a bad cusser. I'll only make you do one more, and of okay. course I have to ask, may I please talk with the fake Jerry Jones? Okay, so this is an interesting one. Okay. And I'll tell you why it's interesting. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> All right, now we're right here. We're talking with uh, um, the Red Miller, uh, who of course does uh, does um, uh, a podcast, and I think that's a term that's going to age really well podcast really well we're being i'm smiling and i'm being tried when i say it but i am saying it and it's fun and now we have a good time (laughs) it's starting to kill my throat so the weird thing about that jason that fake jerry thing yeah sounds to me it sounds almost nothing like him but now when people think of jerry they think of your jerry right nationally yeah it's really weird it's it's that whole the Dana Carvey effect. George Bush, is, Dana Carvey. Dana Carvey, who would imitate people, and Dana Carvey would just up the heroin on every one of those characters yeah. where they would get so <laughs> caricature and cartoonish. But yet everyone who then imitated that person afterwards would do Dana Carvey doing that person. And that's the way the fake Jerry has become, certainly here in North Texas and uh, nationally, too, in the sense of because like Troy Aikman and Joe Buck and <clears throat> Frank Caliendo and a lot of these national figures listen to our bits and... And so they they do the fake Jerry based on the fake Jerry that we've done for all these years. Uh, so it's it's funny to me that a such a cartoon version of Jerry is now the way that everyone does fake Jerry because he doesn't he uh, he actually talks a little bit more like this and has a full uh, a voice that comes out and he uh, talks and uh, you know I, I've turned it over to Stephen and. Uh, you know, he does, he's, he's got a real voice yeah. he's not all down here, blah, 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 doing all that stuff. <laughs> it's almost like a lot of Johnny Walker black or whatever, like right. maybe late, late, late. Yeah. Down get that real whiskey voice down in here and everything. Oh, it's so good. And you've, you've, uh, you don't have to call him out, but you've busted other people for basically kind of ripping off your bit. Yeah. People will be traveling and, and listen to some sports radio station, I don't know, Cleveland or somewhere. Yeah. I know it's happened down in Houston, and they'll, man, they've they not only took the concept, you know, because these are public domain figures, and I can sure. understand them doing a character and then calling it fake Jerry because it's fake, and that's the guy's real first name. But then you start hearing the actual jokes that you did that. Uh. I know they just take it wholesale <laughs> and just repurpose it for their market, and they get some one of their guys to do the voice. And it's radio. Good luck with that. Yeah, good luck with that. I never pursued it. Okay, so finally, when you and I first met we were probably both about 21 years old Mm -hmm. roughly if you could talk to a 21 year old gordon keith in today's world Mm -hmm. which i know it's actually probably you and i have an easier time visualizing this than some people might because we both have kids that are not far away from that age but if you could talk to a 21 year old version of you what advice would you give yourself i actually think that there's no way i would listen to any advice from me now uh so i i think that 
that's what frustrates me about the thought experiment is that, man, I couldn't say anything that would make a difference and that would change my course. But, you know, I would say to be a servant of your talents a little bit more and not, not think of it as your talents are there to serve you, but kind of the other way around. And I think you'll be more productive that way. Um, if you realize, you know, you have some, some good qualities and you can make people happy with those qualities that the talents that you have aren't there to make you happy. It's like, it's there to make other people happy. And then that will make you about 40 times more happier than if you're just doing it for your own glory and your own, uh, enrichment, you know, I think that I would tell him something along those lines and then watch him roll his eyes and <laughs> say, who's this old fat guy coming up to us at the bar here? <laughs> <laughs> prattling on about how he's me in the future. There's no way I'm going to end up looking like that and being that way. Well, I really appreciate being here in your airstream with you. I mean, I, I feel like I could talk to you for, I could do a, a every day for a month and still just be plumbing the depths of Gordon Keith's mind. Thank you so much for being on Wheels Off. Well, thank you for flying out here in the helicopter here in the desert where my airstream is parked right now. That's right. Don't try and find us. Yeah. Don't try to find us. Very secret. Thank you, Red. Bye. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, as the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. Hello out there. Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you!